You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you, Zach, so much for the introduction. And it is my last day here. Your hospitality is so incredible, so generous. It gives me such joy. And actually, I get a a very emotional because I feel so close to all of you. It, it, it means a great deal for me uh, to be here. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for your beauty, your wonder, your majesty, and that through your cross, we receive your goodness and your love in our Savior Jesus. Transform our hearts day by day to be conformed more and more to our Savior Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Dear friends in Christ, as you know, my messages have been based upon Ezekiel, and um, I'm starting today, not as I started on Monday, where it was chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, then chapter uh, on Tuesday that dealt with the water flowing from the temple, but here today we start with chapter one. If you've never had a chance to read through Ezekiel chapter one, Um, I urge you, when you get home, to look it through. It talks about an encounter that Ezekiel has uh, with the angels, the cherubim. And so um, I'm skipping over that first part, but I'm reading towards the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Over the heads of the living creatures, that is, the angels, there was a likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads, and under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so was the appearance of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking, and he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet. I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel 
to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though buyers and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. In college, I took a course in Christian education. The motto of the professor, and I think it's memorable, I think you will remember it as you leave uh, the sanctuary this day, very simple, hook, book, took. Hook, book, took. This slogan meant that when teaching any age group, you need first an attention getter, a hook. Then you need to build content, book, and then you need to help students apply this content to their lives, took. Our lesson from Ezekiel today has all three. First, we'll start with Hook. Like other prophets before him, Ezekiel receives a call. Often these call narratives also start with some kind of attention-getter, a hook, a divine manifestation or appearance that blows the prophet away and sends him a signal that God means business. Moses saw the burning bush, while Isaiah met a flying seraph aiming to purify his lips with a burning hot coal. Here, Ezekiel encounters God, one with the appearance of a, of a human appearance, a likeness. For many Christians, Ezekiel meets no one other than our Lord Jesus Christ prior to his incarnation. Our Lord is seated in his chariot, which is empowered by cherubim. And these cherubim are stunning, awesome, fearsome creatures bound to get your attention. Hook. Amongst other things, each has four heads symbolizing different excellencies. A man symbolizing intelligence, a lion, sovereignty, an ox, servitude, an eagle, power. The heavenly chariot is fueled by these angels and can go anywhere because it rests on a gyroscope, a wheel within a wheel. Far from comforting, this encounter with God is terrifying. Ezekiel falls to the ground in dread and humility. God has got his attention. God has a command for him, prophesy to the rebellious house of Israel. Ezekiel is told point blank, don't be afraid of the people. And so as it says, and you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit, did you hear it the first time, sit on what? Scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, 
and you shall speak my words to them. At this point, we have moved beyond hook and have come to book, content. As we have seen these last two days, God intends to comfort his people. We learn this from the dry bones in the valley raised to new life and the river of healing streaming from the restored temple. But this comfort comes to the people only as they repent of their rebellion, idolatry, and injustices. It's not that God is a killjoy. It's that God tells the truth. God wants his people to come clean, fess up to their infidelities and violence, face their sin head on, and repent of it. God calls Ezekiel precisely to preach judgment to the people, even though that won't be easy. God calls Ezekiel to be his ambassador. Such a calling you may or may not share with Ezekiel. But make no mistake, dear friends in Christ, you have a calling. I've been a preacher for 34 years. I confess that I never encountered the divine chariot with its scary steeds and awesome charioteer. Instead, it came as no surprise when I told my family that I would go to the seminary. After all, I was only five when my Aunt Martha, a a matriarch in the family, informed my parents, informed my parents that I would be the first pastor in the family. She said this repeatedly to my folks, and she was joined in this assessment by her sister, my Aunt Marie. In my youth, more than once, pastors encouraged me to go to the seminary. I'm grateful to serve as a pastor and a professor to preach and teach God's word. In this role, I encourage my students to find their sense of calling, their sense of vocation. I don't believe that that is an easy task for everyone, but I know that those who have a strong sense of meaning or purpose in life are less prone to anxiety, unhappiness, or depression. That doesn't mean that every worky day is honky-dory, but it does mean that such men and women have resilience to help them navigate the ups and downs that come with life. A great Contemporary Christian thinker, Frederick Buchner, he offers some advice on vocation, and I'm going to read a little paragraph from him. So Buchner says this, the kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, A, that you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done. So as he puts it, the work you need most to do and what the world most needs to have done. He goes on to say, if you really get a kick out of your work, you've presumably met requirement A, but if your work is writing cigarette ads, then chances are you've missed the requirement B. On the other hand, if your work is being a doctor in a leper colony and you have probably met requirement B, but if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, the chances are you have not only bypassed A, but probably aren't helping your patients much either. Neither the hair shirt nor the soft birth will do. The place God calls you to 
is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, I want to say, I think there is wisdom here. I think it's worth your time and my time to think about what Buchner proposes. God wants you to live in service to others, whether your particular vocation may be. But given some circumstances, you are not guaranteed happiness in this life. The pandemic has taught us that trial and affliction are unavoidable. Just like opposition to Ezekiel's message was unavoidable. The truth is, is that vocation is nothing less than heeding Jesus' bidding for us to bear our crosses. For some time, as many of you know, I've taught folks about the theology of the cross. What's the theology of the cross? It's the truth that God finds ways to break down our pride and self-centeredness, including spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness, in order to make us open to live by faith in Jesus alone. We learn this theology less through books, although I would say the Bible is the chief book that teaches it, and more often is not through painful experiences. No one runs to become a theologian of the cross, but invariably, if we live long enough, the cross comes seeking us. St. Paul expressed it well when he said, and you know it, when I am weak, then I am strong. I'll never forget a successful businessman in a forum telling me point blank that the theology of the cross was not for him. He had it all made, a perfect job, a perfect family, a perfect home. I wisely kept my mouth shut. I remember what my seminary teacher would say of such folks who feel that they had it all and so didn't need Jesus. Just feel your pulse. I remember a delightful experience here at the Advent, at the Tanner's home. It was maybe about 10 years ago. And there was a group of Advent folks asking about the theology of the cross. It was a joy to be with them. I'll never forget an elderly man. He was in his 80s, I would say. And he wisely and politely said, I really like what you have to say. He says, we're Episcopalians. We're evangelical Episcopalians. C.S. Lewis is our man. And I don't see the theology of the cross in C.S. Lewis. And he said this really sincerely and beautifully. And it's one of these moments, as he was talking, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I see it either. But then it just instantly came to me. I looked right at him. I said, I hear you, but remember Eustace, in one of the Narnia books, he's the, he was the little kid that was kind of snotty. And remember, he's turned into a dragon. And remember, it's so graphic how Oslan comes and with his nail just tears a hole in his skin, if that wouldn't be an experience itself. And what is there? There's another Eustace dragon behind that. So what happens again? Aslan tears. And again and again and again. Until finally, Eustace is there. 
And I looked at the man, I said, if that isn't the theology of the cross, there is no theology of the cross. Perhaps nobody got it down better than C.S. Lewis. I pray that in your vocations, whether they are prophetic like Ezekiel's or something less flashy, like being a grandparent, that you experience a deep joy and satisfaction, as Buchner says. But I also know that you will face challenges. Some face challenges like Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced, standing up to evil systems and losing their lives for their witness. Others will experience life in a less demanding way. In either case, dear friends in Christ, you are a disciple of Jesus. You too, like Ezekiel, are called, as Paul put it, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. We've received our hook, Ezekiel's uncanny encounter with God, and we've received our book. Like Ezekiel, we too have a calling. And now let's receive our took. You are called to live in truth, in word and deed. Not everyone will appreciate you for that. And folks, that's okay. You can live with it. God doesn't call us to be wallflowers, but disciples. My youth in the early 1970s was a time of great social unrest in this country. I'll never forget seeing a photo in the bi-weekly church magazine of a protester holding a sign which read, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? I'll never forget that image. For one thing, I knew enough of the Bible to know that St. Paul saw himself as a fool for Christ. So there had to be some truth to that poster. But the question, whose fool are you, I found to be abrupt, if not, in fact, downright forceful. It's not as if humans, though, are neutral, undriven creatures with some little pilot between their ears or behind their eyes who makes our decisions in a purely objective nonpartisan, rational way. No, we are instead creatures captivated by impulses, desires, and drives. Only if Christ captures your heart can you truly be free. But if Christ captures your heart, many may think that you are a fool. In fact, you may even think that you are a fool. But what you will find is with Jesus as your Lord and not some glittery substitute for God, you are quite free. You are forgiven. You are validated. All of God's being in Jesus Christ reaches out to you with divine favor. You are loved. You have meaning and purpose. And dear friends in Christ, you are empowered. God called Ezekiel, and so God calls you. The question this Lent is, is how will you respond? In Jesus, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.